it's very difficult to see inventory piling up. If we were working on a manufacturing floor, um, you could see inventory piling up and you could see, you know, this siloed group of people over here, the UX team, producing lots of assets that, um, that, that are piling up, right? But in a, in a virtual world, digital world, you don't see that. You don't see code um, and artifacts piling up. It's not evident walking through an office building. And so we want to make that, that hidden work, that inventory, that virtual digital inventory, we want to make that um, apparent and, and easy to see. And so we'll do a, we do an awful lot of, of stuff to create you know, visualizations and, and um, uh, visual representations of that work so that we can make better, but ultimately make better decisions. You were just listening to the voice of Chris Schinkel. Chris is the Director of Innovation at SEP. And this is the second part of my interview with Chris. If you missed out on the first part, make sure you go back and listen to it. My name is Jonathan Cottrell. You're listening to Developer T. My goal on this show is to help you as a driven developer uncover your career purpose so that you can do better work and positively impact the people that are near you, the people you have influence over. Now, that's the whole goal of this show, finding your purpose. And then ultimately, your purpose will help you drive your principles and your practices. These are the three pillars of this show. We've talked about focusing on these for this year, especially. And this episode and the previous episode, this interview really talks about the principles. And uh, you'll see how we kind of go back and forth between principles and practices and how practices actually kind of act as an expression of those principles. Uh, if you set up principles, you can see how the actions that you take on a day-to-day -day basis, even the very small actions, like taking the time to name a variable correctly, that really goes back to your principles. You believe that code should be readable, right? Uh, so I'm really excited to get into the second part of my interview with Chris Schinkel. Making things visual. This is something that uh, that really Kanban holds very high. Uh, but also, I mean, really in anything in the Agile space, uh, making something visual is so important. So uh, whether that is a, a bunch of uh, post-its that you put up on a wall, uh, or if it's, you know, even if it is a digital space that you share, you know, I found that it's, it is really effective. You know, I work at a company called Whiteboard. Uh, we use whiteboards in every single room. Uh, we have a, a relatively large whiteboard available, uh, whether that's a big piece of glass or an actual, you know, a painted wall. And the reason for this is because we have to, um, you know, to get this information out of our minds and to share it with each other. We, a lot of times that means, you know, creating our own visualizations rather than using uh, a, a lower resolution tool, right? My hands are the highest resolution tool that I have available to me uh, in terms of creating visualizations. So, you know, even though my drawings are quite bad, uh, I'm, I'm not good at drawing. Uh, I can I can communicate an idea much faster on a whiteboard than I would be able to communicate it, you know, by typing it out, by explaining it, uh, or, or even by talking. Sometimes talking doesn't quite get the idea across as well as drawing or, uh, you know, putting words up on a board. It, it seems right. like such a simple step, but, um, you know, this this can make or break a project. Absolutely. Uh, so thank you for sharing. That's fantastic. I, I hear these stories all the time uh, from people who have implemented Agile in a successful way. 
And very often we see these massive, massive swings talking, you know, two or three X, um, in some cases, swings in terms of throughput. And this is, this is just another case to add to the pile of, you know, when done correctly, this can really make a big difference to, to how you work. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, right. It, it makes a difference on so many areas that, I mean, the tools and the way you work and structuring teams, but, but the mindset shift, the understanding of, of how to work in this, this new era, this, this digital era, this, you know, age of, of where we're all knowledge workers, really understanding what it takes to be successful in that and how that, that mindset um, is different um, than maybe traditional um, schools of thought or the way companies have traditionally managed and built products for hundreds of years. Understanding that really does make a, make a significant difference. Absolutely. So uh, your your title at SCP is Director of Innovation, by the way. Correct. Um, yes. And, and this this title is something that. So let let's make this very uh, very tangible. What does that What does that mean as a software developer? You know, what is it that you have done um, to to kind of be an innovator in the space? Or or I guess a better way of describing that is how can we think as software developers, how can we think in terms of innovation? Sure. Um, so I, I started out at SCP as a developer, developed and then ended up managing product projects for years, but always was very passionate about learning. And as a result, was always bringing new ideas and new concepts into the organization. And at, one po- at some point you realize that, wow, in this industry, the successfulness or the longevity in this industry is dependent upon our ability to learn and continue to learn and continue to grow. And in some, in some cases it just felt like, you know, organizationally like, wow, are we leaving that a chance? Are we leaving that just seems like we, we, we should put somebody in a position where they could focus on that mm, yeah. uh, full time essentially. And so that's, that's what I became. I, I don't direct very anything (laughs) very little do i actually direct but what i do do is i'll share um at conferences and um clients what we're doing and what i'm learning and what we're learning as an organization um and i spend a lot of time working with our development teams we have a lot of smart engineers and and like in a lot of organizations uh, people building the technical work man they have a lot of fantastic ideas and a lot of really insights and knowledge into the way products should work and should they and, and should be built. And so I spent a lot of time with our teams learning from them and then, um, you know, sort of pollinating that around the office, sharing that information around the office as well as externally. And so part of my job is externally sharing what we're doing and learning from people outside of our organization and bringing those ideas back in and then learning within our organization and sharing those um, with, with, with each other. Um, Again, all in the name of, of trying to build better pr- products. You know, we we started really adopting some of the agile and lean thinking and, and stuff because we wanted to to learn to build the product the right way. We wanted to build great, high quality products. We wanted to to, to be six, more successful um, in in the way we approached and, and built those um, built those products. But we also learned that um, just building the product technically correct wasn't going to necessarily generate or lead to, to success. And so mm-hmm. there was some other things there, right? It wasn't just about building the product right. It was about building the right product. And so 
what do we need to do in order to, to facilitate that? How do we help our clients discover the, the right product to build um, and then execute on that and build it, build it you know, correctly or technically correct? And so our engineers, um, I mean, they're all makers and they love making stuff, but it's pretty demoralizing to make something or spend time making something, um, working a year or two on a project or product to give back to the customer and to see it fail um, because of something that could have been avoided, something that could have been identified early on. And so in addition to all the Agile and Lean um, concepts that help, really helped us learn to build the product the right way, um, I have spent a lot of time in my role um, bringing in ideas, helping us help our clients to build the right products. And that's some of this bringing in design thinking and behavioral design and those concepts um, really were, were, were part of trying to help our engineers put them in a great place to be successful and feel like they're, they're making a difference. They're building products that ultimately are, are being delivered to the, um, uh, the market and um, seeing an impact. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, uh, the mindset of an engineer that is building a failing project is, it's a dangerous place to be. You know, uh, I think a lot of, really, there's a, there's a big future in um, being more aware. And this brings up kind of a different topic. It's really a topic of mental health for developers um, because this is actually pretty stressful, inter- uh, uh, pretty stressful uh, uh, industry, right? Because a lot of the time, you know, people don't realize the stress on a developer, um, especially a developer who's in a bad process, who's stuck in a bad process. Mm -hmm. They feel like they can't get out of it. Uh, A large company that is relying on a single developer who is in a bad process, who doesn't have somebody to relieve them, who isn't really working on a team as much as they are, you know, working as a cog in a wheel. In the same way that a, a poorly constructed machine will break the parts that are smallest, a, a software developer can end up in a very, very bad situation from, a, from the perspective of mental health. But um, that's kind of, a, kind of an offshoot subject. Uh, I, I just want to mention it as an important thing. You know, if, you, if, if right. somebody who's listening to the show right now, if you feel like your job is, is you know, creating a bad situation for you. And there are signs that you can talk to people. Uh, you know, I am not a mental health expert. There's, I, I don't, I shouldn't really even be talking about this with any level of authority other than I'm a human too. But, um, you know, if you do feel like something is, is about to break you, then certainly well before that, talk to, talk to the people you work with, first of all, and say, Hey, you know, this is really not working for me. Can we find a better way? And if that's not working, go and talk to someone else. Uh, it's not worth it. It's really not worth you know sacrificing um, your physical or your mental health for that matter. And, and the good thing is, people like Chris are are creating better ways for it, creating productive, happy, positive environments where the products that are being delivered to the market, you know, that outcome that very often as developers we like to divorce ourselves from the outcome of a project because, hey, you know, it's work, right? Um, that's such a that, that that is not really a realistic uh, way of viewing your work. And uh, this mm-hmm. what what Chris and and other uh, uh, leaders in this, I guess uh, I don't like using the term thought leader, but uh, certainly this it applies in your in your case. 
um, other people who are who are basically forging the way forward uh, in terms of of uh, uh, creating sustainable and positive processes that are that are you know brought up to uh, the standard of the digital age. Uh, this is this is how the future of this industry looks. Right? It, it's, right. it doesn't look like it's getting worse. It doesn't look like more stress for developers. It looks like those, that era is coming to an end. Right. Uh, and hopefully that is, you know, idealism, um, will, will win out when it comes to, uh, software development in the future. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing to forward that at SCP. And, um, I'm just very thankful that, that we have this kind of research, for example, that shows us, hey, as it turns out, happy developers also turn out to be productive developers, right? Absolutely, that's right. Huge, huge fan of of that that thinking, and and largely the processes we build are ones not only that help our clients, but are the 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 ones that are um, most satisfying and enjoying to our um, engineers and developers. It's it's not an either or, right? It's not like what's the best process or pro- that, that that for our customers that engineers hate, or what's best for what our engineers is going to be horrible for our customers or their our, their products. And we just don't believe that that's the case. That there is a um, um, the true you know best for both of those those worlds um, produces the best results, and uh, and so we really strive to to do that. Today's episode is sponsored by Linode. It's a new year, but Linode is still providing the same excellent service that they've always provided. And they've come back in 2018 with another four-month credit, a $20 credit for their Linux in the cloud service. You can instantly deploy and manage an SSD server in the Linode cloud, and you can get a server running in just a few seconds with your choice of Linux distribution, resources, and node location. This is very simple and it hasn't changed very much because these same building blocks are kind of fundamental if you're a developer. Linode is providing you with the Linux operating system in the cloud and that's that's really kind of a fundamental building block for pretty much every app or web service that you can imagine building. Now of course Linode is continuing to innovate within their company and in their service offerings. For example, they do have 24-7 friendly support. They have phone support. You can call somebody in the middle of the night and you're going to get a human on the phone and you're going to talk to them and they're going to help you with your problem. Uh, th- this is a unique experience to have if you're a developer that you're you know, working on an app at 2 a.m. on a Saturday. Uh, hopefully you're not doing that, but maybe you are and you need support. Well, Linode has your back there. They have VMs for full control. You can run Docker and containers, encrypted disks, VPNs. Pretty much anything you can imagine doing on Linux, you can do on Linode, except it's in the cloud. So they also have a new beta manager. And this is one of the cool uh, kinds of things that Linode does. They've open sourced this. It's a React app. It's a a single page app. Um, They built it with React and it's available on their GitHub page. So Linode is basically a company of developers, and they're going to give you resources too. This is such a cool thing. Linode is building a knowledge base, and they'll send you resources. For example, after you have uh, uh, called them on a support line, they'll send you a resource that's relevant to your problem so you can learn more. Uh, Not just solve the problem and move on, but solve the problem and then gain some better insight. So Linode is providing you with that four free months 
for using the code. This is a new code. Developer T 2018. Developer T 2018 at checkout. Head over to spec.fm slash Linode now to get started. Thank you so much to Linode for continuing to sponsor Developer T. So I want to have a quick discussion uh, with you. We're going to shift gears a little bit here uh, because I know we're, we're going to run out of time pretty soon. But uh, shift gears a little bit to a discussion about behavioral science. And um, we've talked about uh, quite a few things related to Agile. And recently you've been discussing and kind of contributing to the idea that behavioral science can help us make better backlogs. Can you kind right. of walk through... Uh, just kind of a three or four points that that really sum this up and, and give us some action actionable advice on how to create better backlogs through behavioral science. Sure. Um, so I'm not a cognitive scientist. Like I said, I was an engineer, but we grew up and, and did a lot of work figuring how to build products the right way, uh, but didn't always help us build, did not always um, build the, the maybe the right product. And so... Uh, as I started really into this world of design thinking and product discovery, realized there's a lot of things we could do to help build the right product. Now, you, you, what I see time and time again is that we work with our clients to build a backlog of all the things we need to build. And there's this sort of this uh, assumption that if I get the right mix of features or stories in my backlog, if I get this right mix, it's like a good recipe. If I get all the ingredients just right, then we're going to produce a great output, right? We're going to produce a great product. And um, unfortunately, like that's not what happens. And I see it time and time again, organizations that have great ideas, they've done all this research, they've, they, they, they've, done, they, they, they've learned uh, all these fantastic things, they've hired great design companies to build fabulous looking products, and then release them and see them sort of fail in the marketplace. And... Yeah. Um, and what I believe is that a lot of times we focus, I'll use a, a phrase from a friend, Jeff Patton, and talk about the difference between outcomes versus outputs. So all those features and stories and requirements and things we build, we'll call those outputs. And we can so focus on those, we miss the bigger picture. What we're really trying to, to do, what we're really trying to achieve is a better outcome. We're, we're, we want the world to be better. Like what's going to be different once the product is in the hands of the users? And, um, and focusing on the outcomes... Um, we arrive at or we realize um, better impact on, on the end users and the, and the world itself. And so there are better ways to do that. Unfortunately, a lot of people operate under this mindset uh, that what I'll call a standard economic view, where that we as humans are rational, we behave in ways that maximize our own self-interest, that most of our decisions are made cognitively and deliberately, um, and it just turns out like probably not a huge surprise that that's not really the case. Yeah. Um, and yeah. there's this other sort of contrasting viewpoint that will, that's really where behavior economics comes from that says, you know, we're swayed by a lot of, of, of different factors and that most of our decisions are made emotionally and automatically. And so when you build a product, I think when people build backlogs and they're thinking about the right mix of ingredients, the right mix of features to go into those backlogs, they're, they're sort of, they're operating oftentimes in a way that, that aligns themselves with that standard economic viewpoint that their users are rational, that I'm going to build this thing. I'm going to give it to them. They're going to use it in this way. They're going to see the benefit and they're going to continue using or continue buying the product or service. And it's going to be awesome. And, you know, we're going to be the, the next Apple or the next, you know, big thing. 
And, and then they struggle to understand when it doesn't quite work out that way, like what went wrong, mm-hmm. what happened. Yeah. And so when I work with our customers and we're building backlogs, it turns out there is always more software to build than mo- time and money allows. And so things sure. have to get cut. Things have to get deprioritized. And, and oftentimes, and so what I see a lot of times that ends up getting deprioritized or left out are some of these features and some of these um, um, uh, stories or, or, or whatever that, that are come out of this, um, that are more in, involved in influencing uh, users' behaviors. Um, and to, I can imagine just to a C-level exec that a, a, another report or a different export format or another feature sounds much better than um, this sort of soft, fuzzy thing over here that feels like a sort of a feel-good thing. And, and without clear ways to tie those tangible benefits, those better outcomes to these other features, I think they oftentimes get left out. And they yeah. oftentimes are the difference between um, success and failure. And so if we understand how, I believe, if we understand how people behave and, and how they're influenced, then we can design for it. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage yeah. people that there, there's a couple of different things they can do. They can use some of these um, cognitive shortcuts. We're all humans. And so unlike cognitive biases that are influenced by our um, environment, our makeup, our, you know, where we've grown up and um, all our individual experiences, you know, these cognitive shortcuts, these, these behavioral, you know, um, um, ideas are, I mean, they're like hardwired into us. Like we're all humans. And, um, in other words, everyone has, everyone has this, uh, whether or not you opt into it isn't really the question. It's just how you deal with it. Right. And so I, I tell people like, there's a couple of things you can do. One, you can, you can use some of these ideas to help influence your users' decisions. Um, now, mm-hmm. people will yeah. oftentimes ask, well, is that ethical or moral, right? And, and you know, I'll kind of quote the, the, the phrase from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, you know, and I, so I tell you, ask yourself, am I using this to help my users be more awesome? Or am I using this for my own gain, you know, financial yeah. gain for organization or whatever? Why am, what am I trying to do? Turns out mm-hmm. there's actually a site dedicated to this called Dark Patterns, and they have a hall of shame. And excellent it's, site. It's, yeah. it's really a site that's, that's identifying people using these things in a manipulative way. Uh, and that's not what we're talking about. That's not what I'm advocating. But I am advocating for the person who has, um, let's say, diabetes, and they, they want to better manage their disease, but they struggle making some of those decisions every day that's going to help them or benefit them, right? You would, mm-hmm. if, if people are, are rational and, and make, you know, in decisions in a, in a, in a rational way, um, well, clearly they'll, they would see the benefit and, and it would help, you know, they would make good choices. And, um, but we know that that's, that's not oftentimes true. And so right. yeah. using some of the ideas to help people get, a, you know, better control of their, their disease or their weight or uh, their finances or, or, or whatever it may be, helping them to accomplish something that they want to do, helping them be more awesome, um, turns out is not only feels great and is super empowering as developers to feel like you're making and having, delivering better outcomes and making a, 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 a bigger impact, um, but it's awesome to deliver products into the industry that then stand the chance of really making um, 
a, a significant difference. Yeah, having so, that good outcome you were discussing earlier. Yeah, right. And so you know, um, th- there's a lot, and, and this this idea I think is more approachable than maybe has been in the past. There's lots of books um, out there. I, just a couple. There's a book um, from O'Reilly called Designing for Behavioral Change. Um, there's a book called Webs of Influence, um, Predictably Rational. So there's lots of books I think that, that's that's made these these concepts um, more yeah. uh, mm-hmm. approachable. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, that's helping us to take advantage of these. Now, in addition to the, sort of these sort of cognitive, what I'll say cognitive shortcuts, there's also, um, various behavioral models. And so the one I often reference is by a guy named BJ Fogg, um, and mm-hmm. you can actually find it on behavioralmodel.org. But what he says is for any behavior to occur, three things have to be freshened, sufficient motivation, sufficient ability, and a trigger. And so hmm. you can imagine if something is really hard to do, somebody needs more motivation to do it. And if something's really easy to do, maybe they need less motivation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He wouldn't go so far as to say that there's this threshold there and that once you get above the threshold, if there's not a trigger present, oftentimes people won't, they, they won't um, uh, perform the behavior. They won't, they won't take the, that, that action. And so understanding this, gives us some insight to think about how do we design our applications. Now, motivation is really hard to change. Um, ability, BJ defines like six, six different um, factors that affect ability from time and money and physical effort and brain cycles and um, uh, a few others. That, that, but we tend to focus on one of those. When we, we think about UX, we think about making it easier to use. You know, it's more of that brain cycles or maybe time. And we only pull one of those levers. And he would say, hey, there's six different levers you can pull here to, to change the way you think about building this product. Um, and so there's, you know, motivation, motivations are hard to change. Those abilities are somewhat easier, but triggers oftentimes are some of the easiest to change. And I see those missing um, oftentimes from, from our customers' products. So they'll have a great product. Um, they'll have spent time and money with doing user research and, and creating this fantastic design. And they'll say, Chris, I don't, people aren't using this. I was just simply ask, well, like, what's the sure. trigger? Like, what, what's the thing that's telling people you should do this? And that's often missing. Uh, to help people mm, understand yeah. this, I'll, I'll often ask them, think of the last time your phone rang, your cell phone rang, and you didn't answer it. Why didn't you answer it? And people right, will say yeah. things like, um, I didn't know the number. Okay, well, that was, um, you know, or I didn't want to talk to them. Okay, well, that's a lack of motivation. Uh, some people say, well, I was in a meeting Okay, that's the ability. You didn't really have the time or the, 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 um, a way to sort of take the call. Um, and, and when I ask audiences this, like in, in conferences or presentations, those are oftentimes the, the things that come up the most. And I think it's interesting that I will almost always um, have to prompt them to say, somebody give me an example where a trigger wasn't present. Um, and usually people are quiet and they think for a while and somebody will say, oh, I didn't hear the ringer. And it's like, right, like you're sitting there, you're waiting, you're, you're waiting for the call, you want to take the call, it's an important call, you're expecting the call, um, you know, and the triggers, the, 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 the ringer's off. So you don't have the trigger and so you don't get it. And so I just think it's interesting that we, we oftentimes forget that. We oftentimes forget about um, you know, including those those concepts. And so... Um, we take those and we'll, we'll take those concepts and we'll apply them to help our customers 
think about building a, an engagement loop. Like what, what does it look like? What's the small activities that you're asking them to perform? What's the, what's the reward for performing that? And then um, that, the reward often leads to an investment where we ask people to, to either you know, input data or information that's gonna make the next loop easier or we ask them to load the next trigger, right? So um, would you like me to remind you this? Yes, remind me. Okay, they're loading the next trigger for the, for the subsequent action. Hmm, and so yeah. you can start to create this loop where you're walking people through this, where if I, you know, I know if I time an external trigger um, and fire that at the same time you have an internal trigger firing, um, your response to that is probably pretty good. It goes up quite a bit significantly. And if the action I ask you to take is pretty small and simple, most of the time you'll perform the action. And then if I, if I create some sort of reward, especially a variable ratio reward, then, then you find that very pleasing. And then if I ask you to make an investment or load the next trigger or you know, give me some more information that makes it easy, your, the next loop you know, more fulfilling, you'll, you'll, you'll do that. And so understanding these concepts leads us to be able to create better backlog. So customers come to us. I find that customers, are, we have more and more clients coming to us now um, that have an idea, they have a, they kind of have a backlog. Um, and so they're just saying, hey, hey, build this thing. Um, they're starting to say, hey, help us figure out what we need to add to this so we can realize these outcomes. Because yeah. they, they sort of get that just these things, just these features, these outputs um, aren't going to lead to the outcomes that they ultimately want, want to achieve. Um, and sure. in today's day and age, when 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 you know eyeballs, people's attention are the, are sometimes the scarcest resource. Just competing based on brand or name recognition, or whatever else, doesn't work. Again, we work with companies that are over 100 years old. I mean, they have very recognizable brands and, and, and logos. But you know what? They're competing in marketplaces now, like in in mobile apps and cloud, um, where. That's not where their brand is known, right? That's it, it doesn't carry the same weight. They don't immediately get the buy-in and acceptance. And people are, you know, more fickle. They're, 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 I mean, if you download an app and it's, man, it's, it's not working, you are so quick to delete it and go find something else because there's just so many, so many options available to you. And so yeah. if you really can't help them realize the outcome that they're looking for, if you really can't help them achieve that end, end result, uh, it, it doesn't go very well most of the time, right? It's, and sure. so helping people realize that, that as humans, we, we are, have this hard wiring to work and operate a certain way in that for the most part, people are buying products and using products to make their lives better, to help them do something better, realize something. And, and if we can help them achieve those things, we create a sense of loyalty and, and um, trust that, that leads to a much more successful product, right? Absolutely, yeah. Th than we otherwise would. So that's a really long answer, sorry, to, to your... Oh, no, I, I'm very sorry. My, uh, my wife actually just texted me, and as it turns out, I think we're about to head to the hospital. Uh, so I, oh, I my goodness. to cut this short right now. No, no, uh, you definitely need to cut this short. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate uh, the, all of this insight. I, I, I wanted to keep on listening, and then my wife texted me and said, hey, we actually have to leave now. So <laughs> um, we, we can pick up and continue this conversation at another, at another time in probably a, a week or two weeks. At the very least, um, we can edit this conversation and, and release this if another conversation doesn't work out. But this, is, this has been okay. absolutely fantastic. Thank you again for understanding. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go very quickly, but I very much appreciate your time. No, yep. I'd love, love to continue the conversation again. Congratulations. 
Uh, I pray that everything goes well for you. Thank you. Okay, bye. That was a rare glimpse into the uh, the personal life of a podcaster. My wife and I that night, uh, we went to the hospital and um, we didn't have our child that night, but we ended up having Liam just a short few weeks later. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Thank you again to Chris for being so flexible and kind uh, in the face of that uh, that's kind of shifting moment there. Uh, I really appreciated the time that I spent with Chris, and I appreciate you listening to this podcast. Thanks again to Linode for sponsoring today's episode of Developer Tea. If you want essentially a free $20 bill, uh, it's four months worth of Linode service. Their plans start at $5 a month, and you get a gigabyte of RAM on that plan. If you want a full four months of free service on Linode, head over to spec.fm slash Linode. Use the code developerT2018 at checkout. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I encourage you to share this episode with people you think can benefit from it. Uh, This particular episode is a very powerful way of thinking, a a way of thinking about software. Uh, This episode and last one, this interview with Chris. uh, And I, I hope that this resounds with you as much as it has with me. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, enjoy your tea.